Pat's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Pat, Tracy here. Now, I know this will come as a bit of a bombshell and I don't want to alarm you, but it appears some very dangerous devices have gone AWOL. Quite how many, we're not absolutely sure, but it could be an explosive situation. I need you to track them down without delay. I'm warning you, though, this case is radioactive. Tracy's message was so strange, I had to rewind and play it again. Dangerous devices. Radioactive. It sounded to me like she was talking about nuclear weapons. Surely not, though. That would be way above my pay grade. I wouldn't know where to start. It would be mission implausible. Was Tracy really asking me to confront the ultimate nightmare of a thousand best-selling thrillers? A nuclear device falling into the wrong hands, a shadowy syndicate, a group of disaffected military officers, a crazed billionaire, possibly inside the White House. It seemed so improbable. I just couldn't believe any government would be careless enough to actually lose nuclear weapons. I mean, it's just not possible. Is it? It is, yes. I mean, the Americans have lost about seven. I'm sorry, j just for the record, could you repeat that? The Americans have lost about seven. My first source was defence analyst Professor Eric Grove. He gave me a background briefing on the mishaps of the early atomic age. As Uncle Sam and Uncle Joe vied to see who could get the biggest bang for their buck. Or ruble. As soon virtually as nuclear weapons were deployed, accidents happened. Aircraft crashed, aircraft dropped them. Of course, in the Cold War, nuclear stockpiles were very large. So there were a lot of bombs about, thousands, far too many, in fact, uh, for any, any possible strategic use. And, of course, the Americans were on airborne alert because as the Russians developed missiles to strike at their airfields, they put bombers in the air. So there were aircraft flying around with active, armable thermonuclear weapons, and sometimes things went wrong. So weapons were lost, and lost they remain. The reason the bombs have not been recovered is that they're in difficult conditions to get. I mean, you can hardly go down 6,000 metres very easily. These things are quite hard to salvage. Do these kind of incidents have a, a name at all? The Americans call them broken arrow incidents. And when it came to broken arrow incidents, there were none more intriguing or disturbing than one which took place off Savannah, Georgia in 1958. It was after midnight. It was a clear night with a full moon out. Retired American Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Derek Duke who has exactly the kind of voice you want for an American Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, gave me a full incident report, and it involved an American B-47 with an H-bomb on board. And they were coming back from up the north of the United States where they'd been on a practice nuclear bombing mission. They were intercepted by a flight of F-100 interceptors the bombers were practicing nuclear bombing. The air defense fighters were practicing intercepting Russian bombers. But a mistake was made, and something went seriously wrong. And there was a mid-air collision at high altitude. The fighter pilot bailed out successfully. 
But the bomber pilot said, don't bail out yet, as they have a plan for an immediate emergency landing in Savannah. But the emergency plan didn't go to plan either. He started the descent for the landing approach under radar control down towards Savannah, a 12,000-foot-long runway only that night. As fate would have it, it's under construction. And almost half of it's closed. Typical, isn't it? You've got a crippled plane with an H-bomb on board and there's roadworks on the runway. Tensions were pretty high on the plane and on the ground. The pilot decided that it would be much better to get rid of the 8,000-pound nuclear weapon. So he ordered the weapons officer, the navigator, he ordered him to jettison the nuclear weapon. And the navigator did that. It went out clean. It happened as it was supposed to. They saw no explosion. They saw no flash. They saw nothing. And they landed uneventfully. They literally got out and kissed the runway. They were so happy to be alive. But then they remembered. they just jettisoned an 8,000-pound H-bomb out of their plane. Search team assembled, they had frogmen, they had Navy ships, destroyers, they had uh, blimps looking down. But the bomb had dropped into tidal mudflats and literally sunk without trace. When they let the weapon go, it was never seen again, nor heard of. The US government have said that the rogue bomb didn't contain its plutonium trigger, but Derek Duke isn't so confident. He points to a letter, dated April 1966, in which the assistant to the Secretary of Defence, W.J. Howard, described the bomb as a complete weapon. Officials have since said Howard was mistaken. Derek remains sceptical. The man that was there that night to receive that bomber very skilled in technical knowledge, said that he never received or dispatched one of these bombs during that time period that did not have the plutonium in it. Let me repeat that. No need, I get the message. My next move was obvious. Head for Savannah, Georgia, hire a blimp and look for a bomb-shaped hole in the mud. It turned out, though, that Derek Duke had beaten me to it. In 2004, he was in charge of a further extensive search. But Duke never found his nuke. You know, it's a technically highly complex, well-engineered weapon, and it simply disappeared. But believe it or not, Georgia's not the only place where arrows have broken. The American B-52 bomber, which collided with a refueling tanker, was carrying four nuclear devices, one of which is believed to be still missing. The scarcity of any official statements by the American authorities, which has been severely criticised, gave rise to a flood of rumours worthy of a James Bond spy film. You As I scoured the historical record, it turned out there were plenty more lost nukes which have vanished off the radar. There's one somewhere off the coast of Tampa, Florida. The remnants of another are at the bottom of a swamp in North Carolina. Then there's the bomb that was lost in the Philippine Sea when the plane carrying it rolled off the deck of an American aircraft carrier in 1965. There are also claims that one went astray in Greenland. And that's just the American broken arrows. The Russians may not have been as forthcoming, although we do know of at least five sunken Soviet nuclear submarines. But of course the US and the USSR 
weren't the only countries building nukes in the 50s and 60s. We are making in this country that awful weapon, the H-bomb. But our object in making it is to prevent war, not to wage it. We had no guarantee the Americans would come to our aid if Stalin started marching into Western Europe and we would be on our own. After wartime service in the RAF, Reg Milne moved to the Royal Aircraft Establishment where he would receive a rather unusual offer. In 1950, my boss came up to me and said, I've got a job that I would like you to come and do, but I can't tell you what it is. Presumably, he must have told him what it was eventually, because Reg ended up working on Britain's first nuclear weapon, codenamed Blue Danube. Five feet in diameter, 25 feet long. 32 detonators, all fitted beautifully together. Equivalent to 20,000 tons of TNT. What I wanted to know, though, was whether any of our weapons had ever ended up missing in action. The day that this incident happened, the plane took off from Farnborough in the usual way, flying to Orford Ness on the east coast. But once again, a routine test flight turned out to be anything but routine. About ten minutes later, over Dorking, there was a problem. The crew got the signal that the bomb had left its proper position. It must be resting on the bomb doors. The plane couldn't land with a bomb loose in the bay. And they couldn't drop it on Dorking because it might block the A24 and cause tailbacks to Leatherhead. So they decided on the um, nuclear option. To fly over the Thames estuary and open the bomb doors. The bomb doors were opened. The bomb fell out. Down it plummeted. And remember, this is a bomb 25 feet long by 5 feet in diameter. Lou Danube ended up in the Grey Thames. But before you go wondering why there wasn't more fallout from this alarming episode, don't panic. It didn't explode because there was no explosive in it. It was a dummy there was no explosive or nuclear components. Phew, that's a relief. But while the bomb that dislodged over Dorking was a dummy, the one that Britain tested in a remote part of South Australia in 1956 was all too real, as Reg remembers. I was about eight miles away. Five, four, we had to three, stand two, with our backs one. to it. When it went off, the heat on your back, I can only liken to a steel furnace. Even with your eyes shut, everything looked 
absolutely white. The first trial of an atomic weapon on the mainland of Australia successfully completed. In the typical mushroom shape. The whole thing seemed evil, but full of immense strength and power. From the desert to the ocean, if there are missing nukes languishing on the seabed, how easy might it be for a Bond villain or terrorist with flippers and a snorkel to get their hands on them? Professor Paddy Regan of the Centre for Nuclear and Radiation Physics at the University of Surrey gave me a quick primer. You would look for very precise and specific radiation signatures that are associated with the material that's unique to that particular weapon. So that would be, in these cases, two specific isotopes, the decay of uranium-235 and the decay of plutonium-239. Fortunately, though, any blow-felt wannabes would have their work cut out. The problem is that the water, uh, water is actually a pretty good barrier of radioactivity. So even if you had a pretty intense source of radioactive material, um, say the bottom of the ocean or wherever it would be, mm. if you were scanning a, a gamma-ray detector or a radiation detector across that area, uh, much more than 100 metres away, most of the radiation would be dispersed um, and you wouldn't see it. It would be stopped, basically. In really? The, in as the small an area as... Of that order. Of that order. Of that order. But even if our supervillain were to trace the signature of a lost nuke and dredge it up from the depths, could they achieve world domination? I asked Eric Grove what I have to admit sounds like a rather obvious question. What's the most dangerous part of a nuclear bomb? I mean, what is the bit that a terrorist would be most keen to get their hands on? What is the most dangerous part of a nuclear bomb? I still can't believe I said that. Well, I suppose the plutonium core or the uranium-235 core, but I think the comforting thing, if that's the right word, perhaps not, not an overstatement, is that a nuclear weapon is very hard to set off. You've got to make sure that the detonators go off in quite the right order, and therefore, quite often, although a bomb may explode, the high explosives might explode, it won't set off a nuclear or thermonuclear reaction. It's quite a complicated thing to do. It turns out that getting a lump of metal to convert its mass to energy in a split second is quite hard. And even if you can get it to go off, can you get it to go to where you want it to go off before it goes off? So we see with the North Korean bomb tests at the moment, I mean, the, it's one issue to demonstrate, arguably, that you can set a weapon off. It's a very different thing to show that you can deliver that weapon. But does the weapon even need to be delivered? After years of underwater corrosion... Could one go off accidentally? If anything, they should be safer over time. Um, in order to get a nuclear weapon to explode, what you usually have to do is to compress or make the material more dense, pack it in more tightly. Mm. Um, if it's dissolving, spreading out, that's having the opposite effect. I was increasingly reassured, especially since I don't live in Dorking. There seemed very little chance of Spectre getting their hands on a missing nuke. Or so I thought. There are rumours that various uh, uh, so-called suitcase bombs uh, have disappeared. So-called what now, Eric? So-called suitcase bombs. This one was straight out of the Jack Bauer playbook, a nuke that could be carried in your hand luggage. According to some sources of the 250 former Soviet suitcase bombs, 100 were in fact, quotes, lost, although one expert has said who ought to know that in fact perhaps those 100 were deployed in the West somewhere. <laughs> Did he say 100 lost suitcase bombs? Stay calm. 
Eric did say rumours, but could the rumours be true? And where could I possibly find out? Welcome aboard this Chiltern Railway. Where else? But Buckinghamshire. All this talk of portable nuclear devices being deployed in the West had reminded me of something, and I realised it was the plot of Frederick Forsyth's book, The Fourth Protocol. I also recalled that Forsyth has admitted he's done a little work for the security services. Did he have inside information? First, I had to find his house, following my instructions through some very quiet country lanes. There's nobody else around here at all, apart from a squirrel and what looks like some species of duck, maybe a Moscow duck. I found it eventually, and the author invited me to come in from the cold. Uh, sorry, wrong author. In the Fourth Protocol, published in 1984, dastardly Soviets holed up in a snowbound dacha hatch a plot to bomb a U.S. Army base in the U.K. using a suitcase nuke assembled from smuggled components. They call it Project Aurora. Where did the author get this idea? About 81, 82. Just a thought occurred to me, we are spending billions, literally, on these intercontinental ballistic missiles to carry a nuclear weapon from here to there, the other side of the continent, and drop it onto Russia. Why are we going through all this, if, if it were possible, to build a nuclear bomb so small that it would go into a suitcase? And um, so I, I inquired, I thought, well, I'll inquire. So I found a nuclear engineer. He confirmed that uh, it was feasible. So... Uh, I thought, that's weird. So then I switched from the nuclear technology to the politics of it. And I went, well, why haven't we ever done this? And uh, my second source said, well, it's because of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The purpose of this treaty, which is being signed today in Moscow and Washington, as well as here in London, is to ensure that the vast forces locked in the atom are devoted to the welfare of mankind rather than to its destruction. The treaty itself was published, signed and published, but there were four secret protocols added to it which were not published. Mm. And one of them <laughs> very specifically banned man-carryable nuclear bombs. The treaty is fact. The secret protocols, fiction. Radio Moscow World Service. The members of Parliament have unanimously elected Yuri Yantopov to the post of chairman of the Presidium of the USSR Supreme Soviet. Then I, I thought of Andropov, who was possibly insane, certainly um, paranoid to the point of being extremely dangerous. The Kremlin has rejected President Reagan's offer of a summit meeting with the Soviet leader, Mr. Yuri Andropov. It's a very discouraging response, very discouraging and disappointing and created a sort of him as chairman of the KGB who would actually sanction yeah. such a horror. The book was a blend of fact and fiction. But then there was a twist. I was only told later, and it may be misinformation, I don't think it is, that the KGB read the book and Andropov commissioned 60 and they were in duly made in Russia. Eyewitness reports in Moscow say that military vehicles, including tanks and armoured cars, are positioned... At Mikhail Gorbachev has been replaced as President of the Soviet Union. 
Mr. Yeltsin said he was now unsure whether or not Mr. Gorbachev... Opposition is beginning to mount in the Soviet Union against the new hardline leadership which sees control of the... In the years that followed, the suitcase bombs were apparently destroyed. Or were they? Freddy's heard a rumour. In that tumult that consumed all Russia. Resigned on New Year's Eve, both spoke of the difficult tasks ahead. No one noticed that these 60 packages, probably no more than two lorry loads, disappeared. It just disappeared. Putin entered the glittering halls of the Kremlin to trumpet fans. And I've heard it said recently they weren't destroyed, they were buried. Right. In Moldova, of all places, with a, a very, very elite uh, Soviet, then now Russian, special forces unit, the, an impermanent guard. Um, and that therefore Putin has them. <laughs> They're there. Russia, said President Putin, was modernizing its nuclear missile potential. It all sounded plausible, but was there any proof? Did you ever, uh, at any point, come across evidence that these devices did exist or had ever been made? No. No, to prove beyond a doubt that this happened, that this didn't happen, that this exists, does not exist, has been destroyed, has not been destroyed. Absolute total proof is sometimes very, very hard to come by. But what of that claim that they still exist and could be in the hands of the current Russian president? Who was Freddy's source exactly? Oh, I listen to the night, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> Intriguing, although hardly what you'd call an open and shut case or suitcase. But there was one person who was willing to name his sources. Hello. Former Congressman Kurt Weldon was chair of the Congressional Military Research and Development Subcommittee in the 1990s. He was so concerned about suitcase nukes, or to give them their official title, small atomic demolition munitions, that he held a number of hearings to investigate them. Among the witnesses he called to testify was Russian scientist Alexei Yablokov, a former member of the Russian National Security Council and an advisor to President Yeltsin. And he testified on the record that small nuclear devices did exist and his concern was that they had not been properly accounted for. This was dynamite. No worse, it was enriched uranium. And Yablokov wasn't the only witness to confirm the existence of the suitcase bombs. General Alexander Lebed, secretary of the Russian Security Council, also gave evidence. General Lebed had been a senior military officer, very well respected. He testified before my committee in an open hearing that he too was aware of the uh, development of small atomic demolition munitions, or as they were commonly referred to, loose nukes. Do you have any idea how many of these that might have been deployed? No, we, we were led to believe it was in the dozens. This is real. <laughs> it is a concern. To my knowledge, we've never had a full accounting for the location of small atomic demolition munitions, which is what they're technically called, both in the U.S. and in the Soviet Union. And I'm especially concerned with the situation between Russia and the U.S. today. To me, this was all done in a very hush-hush way between the intelligence agencies of the two countries. And that wasn't the end of the story. Lebed mysteriously was in a helicopter crash and, and killed when he was the governor of one of the regions and was a likely candidate to replace Yeltsin. 
and many people speculate that wasn't an accidental crash. Loose nukes, helicopter crashes, it was all getting rather sinister. I needed my own source, someone at the heart of the Russian government during that tumultuous period when the nukes were supposed to have gone AWOL. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, so I worked at the Foreign Ministry from Middle Ages. I worked with nuclear arms control. Yes, I participated in various negotiations, including the Constart One. Uh, so, yes, I was in the middle of all these events. Nikolai Sokov is now a professor at the Centre for Non-Proliferation Studies in Monterey, California. Were suitcase nukes a myth, or were they real? Suitcase nukes existed. To be more specific, they were like a big and heavy backpack. Ah, backpacks, not suitcases. That's still alarming. So, yes, they did exist. Many legends uh, do surround them, though. How many? More than a hundred, definitely. Who they were made for, that's a very good question, in fact, because there have been, once again, rumors that claimed they were uh, kept uh, by the KGB, which is not actually true. They were made for special forces. But are dozens of these nukes still loose? Nikolai had some welcome reassurances. The Russian government uh, did actually launch a process of verifying the location and the availability of nuclear weapons, and all uh, the suitcase nukes were subsequently located. That seems like the best news since the bomb doors stayed closed over Dorking. So they did have to complete like a very thorough check of the inventory, and uh, uh, like in the end they found all weapons that they were supposed to find, so to say. Is unfortunately the report about the completion of that accounting went almost like unnoticed in the media. They did locate everything, uh, so nothing was lost. But even if they're accounted for, are they, as Frederick Forsyth's source claimed, still in existence? Um, nope. Uh, they don't exist now because such weapons have to be refurbished. So most likely they have been either eliminated or are still waiting for being uh, dismantled but uh, outside the active stockpile. I'm usually quite... An alarmist uh, uh, guy, yes, and I always uh, uh, see threats and dangers, but on the account of Soviet nuclear weapons, yes, I'm quite confident that we don't have that particular threat. So that's, I suppose, a very good news, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> what a relief. Of all the things there are to worry about in the world today, loose nukes can, with high confidence be crossed off the list. The broken arrows are under sea, the demolition munitions are under lock and key, and the residents of Dorking are safe. Although, if you're fishing in the Thames estuary and you think you've got a bite, be careful. It could be that blue Danube.